welcome. If, if you are here um, because you were here yesterday for our fall festival, thanks for visiting. Um, we pray you have a great time with us. Um, we had a wonderful time yesterday with our fall festival from 12 to 3 and um, enjoyed lots of fun for the kids and food and a beautiful day for weather. And I think we had 100 plus guests or so, so uh, it was a lot of fun. So. Again, welcome if you're here with us. We pray God's blessing on you. And one thing that we do as a church, uh, as we meet, we, we meet to worship. We meet to uh, engage and encounter God. Uh, it's really, uh, when you back up and think about it, it sounds pretty wild and audacious to say that, but that's actually God's idea before it ever was our idea. Um, and he wants us to draw near to him and be in his presence. And he's given us instruction in his word how to do that, and what it looks like, and, and uh, gathering each week as we do, is an important part of that. And as we gather, we sing and we uh, remember the great truths about him through song. And so we do that by singing and worshiping in song. Uh, we do that through hearing the word taught and proclaimed. And, uh, and it's more than just a teaching like you would have maybe in school. It's a, it's a teaching where God promises to, to speak through his word. And uh, he, his word is alive in a different way than other written texts are. Because it's his word, and he's an eternal, almighty God. And uh, so we do that, and we spend time as well uh, celebrating communion and uh, this, this wonderful sacrament that he's given us to remember the great truths, uh, central truth about him. And so that's what we're doing here, just to let you know. Uh, in it all, we come together because our God is great. And so we're going through the, uh, a book of the Bible called Second Corinthians, and it's a letter that written by the Apostle Paul to a church that was struggling and we're learning a lot about what it looks like to follow Jesus and to trust Jesus. So we're in chapter 12 today. We're getting near the end of this series, and then we'll take a, a break for some things around Christmas. And then in, uh, in January, we'll move on into the book of Exodus, going through that. So um, chapter 12 will be in verses 11 through 21. We project this on the screen as we go along so you can follow, but the very best thing to do is, is actually have a Bible in your hand and, and follow along there. Uh, but don't feel bad if you don't. Uh, you can watch on screen. But if you'd like a Bible, we can get one in your hands. And certainly, uh, if you don't own one, let us know. We would actually love to give you one. And make sure you have one to look through. And so uh, today, the uh, message is chapter 12, verses 11 through 21. And, and the title is Loving Leaders. And I just want to say at the out outset, before we get into the text itself, uh, there is an unbreakable link between loving Jesus and loving his people. There's an unbreakable link between loving Jesus and loving his people. You can't do one without the other. They go together. Uh, and sometimes we have an idea that you know, we, we can just love Jesus and we don't need to deal with people. Uh, but it doesn't work that way because Jesus loves people. So loving Jesus means we love people. And, and we see this throughout Scripture. I could show you lots of verses and do a whole other message looking at all that the Bible says about this. But for today, for the sake of today, there's one passage that's really profound. And it's this experience that the Apostle Peter has with Jesus. Peter has, uh, he's a follower of Christ. He's um, followed and he's been transformed by his relationship with Christ. But he's still a sinful man, a weak man. And he has this major fall uh, in his life where he denies Jesus at the, at the hour of Jesus' need. Denies him three times. Denies him emphatically. Denies him with, with swearing oaths and everything. Uh, so he really betrays Jesus, and yet he's been very close to Jesus. And so this little section of Scripture is where, where Jesus is restoring Peter to 
his relationship with Jesus, and his role as well. They go together here. And it's really interesting, just for the, the sake of illustrating this connection between loving Jesus and loving people, to watch what Jesus says to Peter as he restores him. So uh, we'll project this, First John chapter 21. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he's speaking of, like, do you, do you really love me more than these other guys might love me? He said to them, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, parenthetically, remember Peter had denied Jesus three times. So Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Um, he was grieved. Uh, do you love me? And he, he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says, do you love me? If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, love my people. To love me is to love my people. And so there's this connection in Scripture between loving Jesus and loving his people. And as his people, we're to love one another as we love him. In this section of Scripture today, we're going to look at how uh, the Corinthian church was actually doing poorly in this, and how Paul uh, led them, was seeking to lead them out of this. And, and the lesson we learn here is that to, to love Jesus means that we love God's people. If we're leaders, we love those we lead. If we're followers, we love those who lead us. And that's what Paul's calling the Corinthians to here. He's going through all these efforts to, to help them understand this and live in it. So let's dig in. Let's pray first. We'll dig in, we'll read the text, and then we'll, we'll learn from it. So Lord, thank you for this truth. And this truth is not just something for Peter, not just something for the church in Corinth, but it's a truth for us. And I pray you'd help us and speak to us. And Lord, um, that you just break through into our hearts. Sometimes we don't hear you for various reasons. We want to hear you. And what you have to say is really the best stuff we could listen to this morning. So grant us power, grant me power to explain and teach and proclaim in such a way that, um, that we could hear from you. We love you and love your ways, so speak to us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 12, verse uh, 11 and following. I need to be in the right book of the Bible. It says, Paul says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here, for the third time, I am ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I my, uh, oops, sorry, where am I? There. But granting that I myself did not burn you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? 
Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking, in Christ, in all, for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there will be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. God's word from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's dig in and look at this passage and learn about this truth that loving God means that leaders love their people and the people love their leaders. And we'll look at three different things here and observe just moving through this sec- section of Scripture. Uh, first, that Christ-like leaders must be loved by God's people, verses 11 through 14. So Paul starts out here saying um, he's recounting what's been going on in the previous chapters. He's been boasting about his personal accomplishments, and, and as such, he is playing the fool. And so he says, I've been a fool. Um, I've been a fool in that I've been boasting. I've been talking about how great I am and what I've done. But he says, you forced me to it. The Corinthians have forced him to it because he wants to rescue them from being captivated by boasting. They're under the spell of these super apostle leaders who have come in and basically displaced Paul and displaced Paul's team by boasting about how great they are, how they are better than Paul, and they have better experiences and a better gospel, and and they're more qualified, and so forth and so on. And these guys are mesmerized by these leaders, and they're captivated by them, and they're no longer really following Paul. And you know what? It doesn't matter that much to Paul whether they follow him in, in particular, but he wants them to follow Jesus. And he realizes if they follow these false apostles, they're losing the gospel. They're losing Jesus. They're wandering off the path of life in Christ. And so that's why he enters into this foolish boasting. He enters in to kind of play that same game, but then to turn it on its head and rescue them from being mesmerized by it. And we've been seeing that as we've been going through these sections of Scripture. You heard last week from Pastor Toby on this. it's, It's interesting what Paul does, what we've seen him do, is he enters into the boasting, but then he turns it upside down, or really right side up, by using the boasting to eventually point to his weakness and to boast about how he is actually really needy of God's grace. And that even the great things that he experiences bring with, with them these, these consequences that force him to face the fact that he cannot do it on his own. He needs God. He needs God's grace. And so he kind of wins at this game of boasting by directing them to the fact that, you know what, the reality is all this stuff just reminds me and points me and forces me to face my need and how weak I am and how limited I am and how hard life is. To face my need for Jesus and then to realize in that that He is all I need. So to find strength in Jesus. And so he, he rescues them really by using, playing the same game, but then flipping it upside down. He really just wants them to, to understand 
that there's more to the story. And it's interesting, that's the problem with boasting, right? Even if boasting is accurate, right? Even if you do have some accomplishment that may be noteworthy, it's not the whole story, right? The reality is, is as great as you might be in certain aspects and, and as wonderful as the things that you've accomplished might be, there, there's more to the story. For every ability you have, there's a hundred inabilities you have. And, and for all of the nobility in your life, there's also lots of problems there. There's a reality. There's just simply your weakness and limitations. There's more to the story. And in, in our world, and, and not just our world, it's really important that we, we don't think of like, well, the world out there, they're the problem. You know, the biggest problem is what's inside of us. In uh, our own tendencies, we, we want to boast. We want people to know how good we are. We want to feel good about ourselves. And, and, and in some ways, uh, that's not a bad thing. But we have this pathway that relies on boasting. And so what's going on in Corinth is not unusual. Matter of fact, I would say it's the normal way of living life. We want to live aware of how good we are and what we've done, and we want to feel good about ourselves. But it's not the whole story, and so we deceive ourselves. So again, Paul comes into this, and he flips it on its head by saying, well, here's all the stuff, but all this stuff forces me to realize that I am not all that great, and I am needy. And the Bible, does, the Bible is wonderful because the Bible tells the whole story. The Bible doesn't keep us it, you know, in this place of like just feeling good about ourselves based on the few things that we might do that are great. And, and they may, may be noteworthy. It tells us the rest of the story. And, and it helps us actually find a better way to live. And a better way to boast, actually. And a better way to feel good about ourselves. But it's a, it's a pathway we wouldn't choose on our own. So there's a number of things the Bible teaches us. First off, a wonderful truth that everything you have, all the gifts you have, all the good things, and you do have good things. You are made in the image of God. You are given gifts. You, you look like God in, in many ways. There's creativity and there's ability to reason and, and, and discover truth. There's all these things we could get into. But the Bible says very clearly this all comes from not you but God. All your gifts, all your abilities are, are just that, gifts. 1 Corinthians 4.7, Paul says earlier to the Corinthians, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast? As if you did not receive it. As if it came from you. Everything, every good gift you have comes from a good God. He is the one who thought up the universe. He is the one who thought up you. He is the one who thought up your giftedness and your, and your abilities and your good experiences. He is the one who thought those things up and led you in. It all comes from Him. So, so ultimately... Our boast needs to be in Him. And, 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 but also we can be free to say, hey, I think the Lord's given me this gift. It, it, and it, it's not a boast, ultimately. It's, a, it's just sharing what God's done. It's a different way of doing things. But there's more to the story, of course, because for all the, the good things that are there, all the giftedness that's there, there are serious limitations, and there are defects, serious defects, in each and every one of us. Moral defects. Spiritual defects. The Bible calls that sin. In, in both who we are, our character, and our actions. The Bible says very clearly, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Now, that would be truth enough if it was left there, but the rest of the passage goes on to tell us some even better news. Verse 24 
it says, Yet God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. This is the New Living Translation. Yet God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. Even though we've fallen short, even though we've sinned, God in His grace, grace is a free gift, unmerited, given from His kindness and love, He freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. So we've all fallen short. That's the reality. That's the rest of the story. We have serious defects. We've not loved God as we ought to. He is only and always good and gracious. Everything we have comes from him. Every good gift is from him. And yet we run our own way and we make our own claims about our lives, right? We like to give the impression that we're the ones who have it all together. We're the ones that are relatively good. And he ought to let us into heaven because we're relatively good. But if we look at ourselves honestly, and we start looking at how that balance thing works, right? We think, oh, the good and the bad. The reality is it goes clunk by God's standard. We've all fallen short of God's glorious standard. And yet Jesus came in his great love. God in the flesh came, took on flesh, became a human being, lived a life just like ours. And yet did it in a way where he always loved God and always loved others. And then he loved us to the point of death on the cross. He went to the cross to die in our place, to pay the penalty, God's just penalty, for that sin, for those defects, for those choices. And so we've all fallen short of the glory of God, yet Christ Jesus came to die for us and to rise again. So that simply by putting our faith in him, turning away from our own boasting, turning away from self-sufficiency, facing the whole story, being honest, and saying, I don't want that, I want something better. We turn to Jesus, we trust his death and resurrection, and we're forgiven. We're made right with God. That's wonderful good news. That's part of the whole story. And the Bible goes on to say lots of good things that come from that, Romans 7 and uh, Paul's talking about the reality first, and then he leads into the, the impact of knowing Jesus. He says, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? He's being honest in chapter 7 of Romans. And then he says, thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is in my mind. I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. This is the reality we wrestle with. And then he says this, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. There's no condemnation in Jesus now. He died for you, so all those shortcomings are paid for. You are forgiven. You are counted righteous. You are counted as a beloved son and daughter simply through faith. And so now we can be honest with ourselves, right? We don't have to portray that we have it all together. We don't have to somehow, you know, protect ourselves by saying, you know, I'm okay. We can be honest. I'm not okay. And yet I'm forgiven and I'm loved. And we can be honest about the gifts. We do have gifts. You do have gifts. You do have ways to contribute and be part of what he's doing. And, and more than that, he gives us power in his Holy Spirit to do these things. And so that's what... That's all the background that Paul's trying to get at, because the Corinthians are living in this worldly system of boasting instead of the gospel, the good news of Christ and all of its implications. And so Paul wants to kind of hit the reset button for them, to, to reboot their Christianity. And he knows that he has to enter into this whole boasting thing, turn it on its head, and then 
have them face what they're doing and call them back. And that's what he's doing in this passage. He loves them that, that much. He loves them that much and he wants them to come back to relating to him and his team properly. These guys have strayed away from their relationship to the gospel and their relationship with Paul and those things are connected. They've been deceived by these other guys. And, and, they're, and they're just... Uh, their relationship with Paul is, is, is troubled here. They are cynical about him. They are accusing him of things. And, and so he's alluding to that in, in verse 13. For what were you less favored than the rest of the churches except that I myself did not burden you? So Paul, when he went to Corinth, he was there 18 months and he chose not to be sponsored financially by them because he didn't want them to mix up what he was doing with, with what the standard way of, of supporting teachers was. The typical way in that culture is, is philosophers and teachers would come in and they would get sponsorships and they would build an audience and they would be great, like guys you'd love to listen to. And, and they didn't necessarily teach what was right and good. And that was the system. And Paul wanted them to know, look, I'm not doing that thing. I'm coming here as a, as a servant of Jesus and of you guys. And so he didn't charge to basically be the teacher. And they now were saying, well, you know, that, that's, there's something fishy about that, Paul. And, and they've cut off the relationship. And so Paul is trying to get them to realize that that's ridiculous. Stop doing that stuff, guys. Understand who we are and what we're about. And, and come back to a right relationship with us. Because we are representing and proclaiming the gospel. And Paul is a legitimate authority over them as well, actually. He's very hesitant to, to exert that authority because he wants them to voluntarily come back to these gospel truths. And in coming back to those gospel truths, realize that Paul and his team are, are representing that, those truths and living and leading them in those truths. He does allude to his role, though. He says, uh, now for the third time, here for the third time and ready to come to you. He's going to say later in chapter 13, verse 1, I'm coming to you for the third time. This is the... When you have a trial, you need three witnesses. These three visits are three witnesses. And so, guys, there's something going on that's serious here. This is, this is not just like you can be neutral and do your own thing. There are consequences. And I, as an apostle, have authority to actually bring God's consequences. Because I love you. So he's actually hinting here, coming for the third time, that I have authority as an apostle. Paul has a rightful place to be over this church, and yet he's very careful in that, he's very gracious, he's very patient, but nevertheless he has this role. And they are failing to recognize the leaders that God has given them. And that gets back to, the, I think, the central point in this section and the title of the message. If we're going to love Jesus, we need to love the leaders he gives us. These guys are missing the gospel and they're missing the leaders that God has given them. And Paul's calling them back to this, to recognize God at work through these leaders, through Paul and his ministry, and to follow Jesus by following this leadership. That's very clear here, and that's an important point for us to understand. Now, by the way, there are no longer apostles like Paul. There are no longer uh, the authorities like Paul. There, there is no human on earth who carries this sort of authority. The Word of God actually is what, what is equivalent of the apostles, capital A, apostles. But under the word, we do have authorities that God's given us. We have, we have within the church, of course, we have pastors. They're not the same. They're not at the same level. 
and they're circumscribed in different ways by the Word of God and so forth. And yes, they serve alongside the whole church. The whole church has a responsibility and an authority to walk in the Word of God and to keep pastors accountable. And they're to serve in a way where they equip the church and there are deacons and deaconesses leading ministries. So get all that, right? That's important background. Don't equate pastors with apostles. But nevertheless, God has given us these authorities in the church for our good. And they are to be like Paul, and we're going to get into that as we go. They're to model the gospel. They're to be, they're to be examples of honesty, by the way. And we've been learning that, right? Uh, no celebrity pastors. Pastors that are just like everyone else, except they're learning, and they're able to exemplify dependency on Christ. But they're honest with their weaknesses as well. And so through that, they model for everyone else. This is what it looks like to be weak yet be strong. To see this treasure in jars of clay on display. And yet we have to be careful that we don't take that quality and we just level the playing field, that everybody's the same. No, there are real authorities and pastors will stand before God on the final day accountable for your soul in a way that no one else will. You'll be accountable for yourself, of course, in a unique way. But with that, there is a burden and a responsibility as well. And so we need to see that the Corinthians are, are missing out on the goodness of the gospel in through their lives and the health of the church because they're missing out on recognizing who Paul is. And that's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to help them understand, guys, stop following these super apostles. Understand who God has called us to be and how we're modeling and lead you in these things and return in re right relationship to us. I don't think that point can be understated in a culture that really doesn't like authority. We have a tendency, now it can be abused on the other side too, but we have a tendency to want to be independent. We don't want to be under anybody. And we have to understand that's not the way of the word. The, the, the way of God's word is he loves us by giving us leaders who are to love us and lead us. And when we say we love Jesus and don't love our leaders, and again recognize there's a category when leaders need to be held accountable. So don't hear what I'm not saying. There are very clear parameters for that. But outside of those things, if we're not loving our leaders by getting behind them and, and supporting them, praying for them, as you guys do so well, by the way, this is not a message aimed at this church. Um, but if we miss out on that, we, we can't really say we love Jesus. It's the flip side of what we saw in John 20. And it goes for all of us. It goes for me, too. I, the authorities in my life in this church are the pastoral team. And then you guys as a whole church are to keep me accountable, just like we do for each other. I'm not, being a lead pastor doesn't mean I'm over the team. I'm, I'm under the team, and I'm with the team, and I'm with all of you guys. And this is God's plan, and it's for our good. There's a, there's a, a book that was written in the 1800s, I think illustrates this point, and illustrates the point of how we can miss out on God's best for us by not recognizing and receiving the leaders God gives to us for our good. In the story called The Man Without a Country, Edward Everett Hale tells us the sad story of a man named Philip Nolan. It's a fictional story, but similar to reality. And Philip Nolan renounces his country during a trial for treason because he's so upset with things. And so his sentence is to spend the rest of his days without a country. And so he lives at sea on all these different ships. And, and uh, he has everything he needs, actually, on these ships. He's got food, clothing. Uh, he's got people, companionship, so he's not like locked up in solitary confinement or anything. But he doesn't have a country, and they're not allowed to tell him anything about his home country, the United States. And he spends his whole life like this. And at first, Philip is like, this is great. 
because I don't want to be. I want to be independent. I, don't, I want to live on my own. And he has everything to be independent. It seems great at first, but he starts to realize, whoa, I, I, I feel so alone. I don't have a country. I don't have... And he starts to realize all the benefits for all its imperfections, which are always there on this earth, under any system and any authority, they're always imperfect. For all of its imperfections, his country brought him much good. And so he starts to long for his country, and yet he never gets to hear about it. And it isn't until the, the end of his life, actually, that he's able to hear how things have, have gone with his country. It's a sad story. And I think it's a picture of the reality that when we reject what God has put in place for us, those who he's put over us, we miss out on the good God has for us. That's what's going on in Corinth. And, and that's a warning for us as Americans and as New Englanders, we're probably the most extreme maybe in that independence, perhaps. Um, it's not good. God has given us these things. And he calls us to recognize these leaders. They have qualifications, of course. We hear all that. But once we, they are qualified, we come under them. And we benefit from that. That's what needs to happen in Corinth. That's what needs to happen in our lives. So let, let me just ask if we recognize that and embrace that. And I think we do as a church by and large. Second point, Christ-like leaders must sincerely love God's people. So these other elements fit in with this. And we see Paul really loving these guys. In his love for Jesus, he loves God's people here in Corinth. And they're not really lovable in some ways. This is a problem church. We've been seeing that as we've been going through 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians as well. There's lots of problems here. And yet Paul and his team, they love these guys. And Paul describes his relationship uh, in the latter part of verse 14. He says, I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours. I'm not after your stuff. I'm not after your money. I'm not even after your recognition of who I am. I want you. I love you guys. I want you to prosper in Jesus. I want to see you grow. I want to see you be free. I want to see you learn to love each other and love those who need Jesus. I'm for you guys. And then he says, for children are not obligated to save up for parents, but parents for their children. He uses this illustration of parents and children, right? I mean, that's the reality. Parents love their children, and parents don't, like, well, we might do it as they grow up, but we don't, like, when they're little, think, oh, wow, I'm going to get so much out of this deal, you know? I'm going to make some good money here, you know? And, and we're, no, right? It's, I love my child, and I'll give everything for my child to, to do well. And Paul's saying, this is what I think of you guys. I'm not, looking, it's a, I'm not looking for you guys for payback here. I love you. I want to see you do well. This is who he is. He loves these guys. And he says in verse 15, like probably any parent would say, for I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I love you guys. I'm, I'm glad to spend my life and be spent, even to the point of death, I think is what he's getting at, for your souls, for your spiritual welfare, for how you're doing spiritually, with God, with each other, who you are. I'm glad to do these things. He says, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? We're going to love you. I, I love you more. Sadly, the Corinthians are loving less. They, they are wandering from this relationship, and Paul wants to call them back to it. But he's saying, guys, this is who I am. This is who we are. He's committed to them. He loves them. It's sad because they're, they're, they're being misled by these super apostles and cynicism has entered in and now they're doubting everything about Paul. 
And that's what can happen. This is, I think it's what our flesh does, is what the enemy does, what the world does. It gets cynicism in there and we start to question. And this is the Apostle Paul. And so they're questioning him on why he didn't charge them when he lived with them. And it looks like from the passage, because he, he says, um, by granting that I myself did not burn you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of these whom I sent you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? It seems what's going on is they are saying, well, Paul, this is all just a setup. You came and pretended to be this benevolent, you know, apostle. And you didn't charge us just to get us to kind of buy in to your integrity so that later on you would come up with this Jerusalem collection idea. The collection for the poor in Jerusalem, right, Paul? That's what you're doing. And we know what you're after in all this. You're going you're gonna to have this collection, and then you're going to skim off the top of that collection and get yourself rich. That's what you're doing. That's probably what they're thinking. And so Paul's saying, I'm crafty? Is this like all a scheme? What? And he says, you know, the guys that I sent for the collection, did they act in any way that was deceitful? And earlier on, we saw, right, in chapter 8, Paul went through rigorous... Uh, due diligence to make sure that he did not have the ability to do any of that. Even though he's an apostle. He, he doesn't have to like justify his integrity before people. He's heard from the risen Christ, commissioned by the risen Christ. He, I mean, he goes to the third heaven, right? He doesn't have to do any of this, but because he loves them so much, he wants to, his integrity and the team's integrity to be without question. And so he sets up all this due diligence. And we talked about that some time ago. So there's no craftiness going on here. And yet cynicism has come in and, 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 and basically robbed these guys of this right relationship. And yet Paul is persistent. And, you know, you think about it, he could have just said, oh, I'm done, I'm done. This is ridiculous. I can't believe that you're thinking I'm you know, scamming here. Forget it. You're on your own. I'm going on. I'm going to start a new church down the road. Forget you guys. But he's not like that. Paul has been affected by the love of Christ himself. And so he loves them with that sort of love. And that's so important to get here, right? We've been seeing it. So Paul, this is all part of the strength and weakness thing. Paul doesn't have the ability to love these guys like he does. Grace, he needs the grace of Christ. It's only through Christ and understanding his love that he can turn around and love. So I wouldn't want you to hear in all this like, okay, we, we just got to you know, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and love each other like this. We've got to love people that are unlovable because we're just supposed to. No, you can't do it apart from the grace of God. It's a good thing to be confronted with the standard, but then it's a bad thing to think you can just work harder because the standard of, of who Jesus is and God's law is meant to drive you to Jesus, to say, please help me to love people like this. And that's what Paul's doing, and that's why he's able to love these guys. I recently read uh, the story to my granddaughter, Ellie, um, the story called The Giving Tree. Um, is Ellie back there? Uh, do you, I don't know if you guys know the book, The Giving Tree. I think we have a picture of it. Um, it's about a tree that loves a boy. Um, the tree gives all her resources to make the boy happy. She loves the boy. So first, when he's a young boy, he, he just climbs the tree and enjoys the shade and eats the apples, and the tree is happy because the boy is happy. And then the story goes on, the boy gets older, he becomes a young man, and he needs to build a house, so the tree says, I love you, I'm going to give you my branches, and gives these branches, and he makes a house. He gets older, and he wants to travel around the world, and, and so the tree says, take my trunk, 
and make a boat so you can travel. And the tree is happy because she's making the boy happy. The boy comes back, he's an old man, and the tree's just a stump. And the boy, the, the tree says, I don't have anything to give you. And he says, I don't need anything, I just want to sit down. And he sits down on the stump, and the tree is happy because the boy is happy. Now, I must admit, when I first read the story, I said, what a ripoff. <laughs> this tree got played by this boy. <laughs> but there's a deeper lesson here, isn't there? That's what love looks like. And that's what God's love looks like. God didn't, God didn't have a need that we love him. He certainly loves that we love him, but he didn't. He's not needy. He didn't need to do what he did. He didn't need to make us. He didn't need to make the universe. He certainly didn't need to come down and take our penalty on himself and die on the cross. He didn't need to rise again victorious over sin and death. He didn't need to, to make sure that the story was preserved so on this day in October 2019 we could hear it. He didn't need to do any of that. But he's like the giving tree. He loves us. This is who he is. He's a God of incredible love. He's a God of truth. He doesn't compromise truth to love, but in his wisdom and in his goodness, he works out a way to, to love us and honor justice and truth in it all. He is the perfect giving tree. And when we get a hold of that love, it changes us in so many ways. And it allows leaders to love like Brothers and sisters, we're all called to this sort of love. And if you're called to lead in any way, you need this sort of love. And there's lots of ways we lead. If we're a parent, we lead. If we supervise others at work in some way, we lead. And certainly if we are a deacon or a ministry leader or a pastor in a church, we lead. And we're to love like this as Christians. And we desperately need Jesus. We desperately need His grace in our lives. It should drive us to Him. We're called to love like He does. And it's only in His love we can do that. Finally, fairly quickly, Christ-like leaders must also thoroughly love God's people. There's content to this love. There's content to it. And so Paul addresses that at the end here. And in the same sort of thinking, he says in verse 19, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. We're not defending ourselves. This isn't about us. It's about you. We want to see you built up. We're doing it in the sight of God. God's called us. He's commissioned. He's empowering us to love you and to lead you. We've been speaking in Christ, not in ourselves. It's all for your upbuilding, to help you be strong in the Lord, to grow and to be like Jesus and to live in His love and to live in His forgiveness and, and to, to love others in His power. And yet he says in verse 20, For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish. I love you, but there's a trajectory to this love. There's content to it, guys. And I'm coming to Corinth because I love you, and I'm coming to Corinth because there are specific things that need to change in your lives. If I love you, I love you enough to model for you that dependency, but also to call you to something better, to call you to that way of living, and not to the old ways. And so he's concerned for them, and there, there are two 
uh, listings of the sorts of sins that he thinks are going on, perhaps. That are realities there. And he's, not, he's listing this so that they would wake up and realize and run to Jesus to get help in these things. And so he's afraid, I'm going to come and I'm going to find these first, the first category, these relational sorts of sins. Quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I'm going to come and find out that you guys have wandered so far under these false apostles that there's all this stuff and it's not okay. These are the sins that are relational sins. And it's it's a real temptation, not just for the Corinthians, but for us as well. These are sins that are There are common temptations. And when we lose the gospel, when we lose this idea of of dependency of Christ, and when we live in boasting and self-focus, instead of honesty and dependency, we're going to go to these things. We're going to quarrel. We're going to fight for our way. And when we don't win, we're going to use things like slander and gossip to get our way. It's the natural consequence of forgetting the gospel. And so Paul's after them to rescue them from these things. And loving people means that we love them enough to address these behaviors. Guys, that's why we're in church, among many other reasons. We are to love each other enough that when we see these tendencies in our brothers and sisters, we need to be humble. We need to model to them how we're getting victory over these things. And there's times when you need to call them on it. This is not okay. What you just said was gossip. You're not part of the solution, so I'm not sure why you're telling me the problem. It doesn't help. You're making that other person look bad. Not good. So we need to love people enough to do those things, to address those things. When there's relational conflict, that we're not to let it just remain or fester. It's not okay. If you are not at peace with another follower of Jesus, it's not okay. God has reconciled, has gone through amazing lengths to reconcile you to himself. And so it's contrary to not be reconciled to other people who are reconciled to him. It doesn't make sense. And you need to extend the same grace that you're receiving to that person. It's, It's a terrible contradiction when there's remaining conflict in a church. Now, having said that, let me tell you, don't be surprised we will all have relational conflict. I don't go a day without it, I don't think. It's not about having it or not. It's what you do when it happens. Do you pursue gospel peace and gospel reconciliation? Or do you just let it fester? It's the denial of Jesus in the gospel of grace to let it fester, to let it remain. Or to think that somehow, if it's really eaten at you, you can just absorb it. Now, there's times when you need to absorb it, and most of the time I think we just simply forgive on the spot. The person never knows that we were offended by that. Because we just say, thank you, Jesus, you're forgiving me. I forgive my brother or sister. But when it festers and tempts us, and it distances us from that person, then there's a problem, and we can't keep fooling ourselves. We've got to get help. And we need to do all we can for our part. Now, there are times when we do our part, and the person doesn't want, and there's things that happen. But we are to do what we can. And so... If we love Jesus, if we know his love, we need to care enough to help others. And that's the other side to this. Don't think you can do it all alone, at least always. There are times when it's just going to be so tempting to you, you just need to be honest. Like, I'm struggling. Get help with somebody who you can trust, who knows you and maybe knows the other person. 
uh, as a pastor and the pastoral team, probably the majority of the pastoral counseling we do is related to just this issue. And it's not because you guys are particularly bad. It's because you're particularly good. Because you guys are good at recognizing I need help. And that's what we're here for. We're, we're, we're here for this. We need help from each other at times, too. We're not immune from this. And we're here to help you guys. There, there are so many, I mean, uh, so many times when I've sat down, and that's what we're doing in pastoral counseling, just listening what's going on, find out what the issue is, and help you work through reconciliation. So I wouldn't want to go through this and think, like, well, these terrible Corinthians, but no. We are tempted by the same things, and we have a duty to love each other enough to do something about it. To pursue reconciliation. To make sure we walk through those things together. Second category of sin that they are struggling in have to do with uh, sins of, of sexual impurity, sensuality, and I'd say substances as well, substance abuse. There's a whole category of, of sin that we can go into when we forget the gospel, the forget the wonder of God's love and the power of forgiveness and new life, of just wanting to find our fulfillment in things. That things are, that are not necessarily wrong. There's a place in God's order for these things. For sex, there's a, that's a whole other teaching, what the Bible says about it. There's a place for God's the one who designed that. It's, it, there's a place it's supposed to be, and there's places it's not supposed to be. Sensuality, he's made us people of the senses. There's a place for that. Substances have a place as well, right? And there's everything that's created is a substance. But, but the problem is, is when we get off, we forget the gospel, we forget um, the wonder of God's love, and we're not finding our life in that, we start to wander and we look for something else to replace God, essentially. We all struggle with that. And it's a, it's a natural consequence of wandering from Christ. And so when you love someone, and you are living in that love, you care enough to address that. And that's what Paul does here. He's addressing them, and we ought to do the same for us, for one another. We need each other in these things. We all struggle regularly with these things. Some of us more seriously than others, and, and we need to be there for each other. We need to find people who know our struggles. doesn't mean you tell everybody everything. But you need to have some people, at least, in the church who know you, know your struggles, and you pray for each other, and you care for each other. And when necessary, you call each other on things. What's going on with that? seems like you're maybe having a little bit too much wine with dinner, or whatever it might be. Know them enough that, that they know you and they can trust you. We need to love them enough to do that. That's what love looks like. That's what Paul's love for the Corinthians looks like. It's what we're called to as well, to love each other. And these, there's a lot at stake here, guys. We can wander from these truths. And eventually, there'll be consequences. God loves us enough to, to call us and, and deal with us. And when I read the Bible, there's some things that scare me a little bit about this. And I've seen it. And the church in Ephesus wanders away and they're not addressing things. And, and the threat, the real threat, the promise essentially, if they don't respond from Jesus, is I'm going to remove the lampstand from you. In other words, I'm going to take away my presence from you and you'll no longer be a real church. The life of God will not be present in you anymore. You might look like a church, but you won't be the real thing. And that's what happens when we refuse to address these truths, to live in the gospel, and to love each other in this way. Eventually, you wander away. So the Corinthian church, had it not heard this truth, and it looks like they did, eventually would have had their lampstand removed. And I've, sadly, watched it happen in churches. And so I think we just need to understand and be called to a diligence in that, and be willing to do what we need to do. I'll close with one short illustration. 
there's a pastor, little known pastor, one of the most thoroughly loving pastors maybe in history in the, the modern world, a little known man named William Grimshaw of the, of the town village of Haworth in England. It's a little church in rural England. I think we have a picture to show you what it looks like. He came to that church. There were only 12 communicants in the church, a little tiny church, hardly anyone there. But he understood these truths. They had transformed him, and that's another whole story, a wonderful story. God had transformed him with the grace and love of Christ, and so he was compelled as a pastor to love others. And so he came to this little church, only 12 people in it, only 12 communicants. And in, in that, those days, by the way, they, they were parishes, so everybody who lived in the, in the county was a member of the church. There were only 12 people. What that means is only 12 people in the whole county were coming to church. Yet he loved them, and he labored, and he visited them, and he got to know people throughout the whole county, and they got to know him, and they saw his integrity and his love, and that church grew from 12 people to 1,200 communicants. Only 1,000 people in the village itself. So people came from miles away to come to this church, to live in these truths. And Grimshaw was quite a man, he, and he had some... He had some uh, leeway in that culture at that time to, to love people uniquely. One little story, there was a spot some distance from the village where many young people used to assemble on Sundays in spite of all his warnings about being in church. So they weren't just, it wasn't just like, let's hang out. It was like rebellion, okay? They were in the church like, we're not doing church. We're going to go hang out. Let's, let's go party out in the woods. That's basically what's going on. And this was going on. Uh, and so Grimshaw was seeking to, to intervene. This is what he did. At last, he disguised himself one evening that he might not be known till he was near enough to discover who they were. Then he threw off his disguise and charged them not to move. <laughs> he took down all their names with his pencil and ordered them to attend him on a day and hour which he appointed. They all waited on him whoops, as if they had been served a warrant, punctually. When they came, he led them into a, a room, private room, and formed them into a circle and said, asked them to get on their knees. Then he kneeled down in the middle of them. and prayed for them with much earnestness for a considerable time. And after rising from his knees, he shared with them a personal and passionate appeal. And he never had occasion to have to repeat that friendly discipline. God used that in the lives of these young people, all of them. This is a man that demonstrates that sort of love. Now don't worry, I'm probably never going to do anything like that. We won't do anything like that. But that's what love looks like. We love enough to call people to live and to follow through in these things. So as I close and um, as the, the band comes up, um, let me just ask you, what is the Lord speaking to you about in light of these truths? What does it look like to love others like Jesus? Is there someone in your life or some context in your life where you need to depend on Jesus more for that sort of love? Let's just take a minute as these guys come up here just maybe close your eyes if that helps. Ask the Lord, pray about these things. Then Jeff will come up and lead us into transition.